Okay, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're at. An incredibly difficult passage today. Uh, this is probably the sermon of the year that I least look forward to. And so uh, we need your prayers. And so if you'd like to stand, we're going to read a couple verses. Uh, if you can't stand, that's fine. Uh, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Continuing here in the Sermon on the Mount. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Father, we just need an extra helping of your grace this morning. Father, we pray that you would teach us about marriage. God, give us the tools to be married for a lifetime. Give us the tools to love another sinner. God, give us the tools to bear with and be kind and employ the gospel in our marriages. God, I pray that you would do incredible, marvelous things with the marriages at Lincoln Avenue. God, I pray that we might be a light, that we might be a shining torch to our community. God, that we might show our world, Father, the, the covenant of Jesus and the church in the way that we love our spouse. Father, we're asking you to do a great thing here today. We need your help. We need your illuminating of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is the sermon that Jesus taught that's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. And basically, Jesus is teaching us about the righteousness of the kingdom of God. Okay, So that's basically the, the, uh, the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Is this, this is God's righteousness, right? And, and it's set in contrast to the self-righteousness of the rule keepers, okay? Know any rule keepers? I bet you do. Uh, the, the, the rule keepers of Jesus' day were called the Pharisees and the scribes. The rule keepers of uh, our day are just pretty much your average American, actually. Your average American uh, is trying to get to heaven by doing what? Being good enough, right? By keeping the rules, right? And so what most rule keepers do is they will tweak the rules so that they get their own self-righteousness, right? Now, Jesus says at the beginning of this, he says, man, that's not going to work. He says in, Ephesians, in, in Matthew 5, 20, here he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, all right? And so what Jesus is doing in this sermon, a couple of things, he is showing us what God's righteousness is, not the righteousness of the rule keepers, but what God's righteousness is. So two weeks ago, we looked at murder, right? So the sixth commandment says you shall not murder, okay? Now, what did the rule keepers do? Well, the rule keepers were like, hey, we can do that one, right? So as long as we haven't killed, you know, as long as we haven't stabbed, shot, you know, bludgeoned, drowned, you know, as long as we haven't done that, then... We're good, right? And it didn't matter to them that they had an angry heart, they had a bitter heart, they had a resentful heart. It didn't matter to them that they had hatred, that they had slander in their hearts. They were like, hey, we haven't murdered, so we're good. We have God's righteousness. And then last week, we looked at uh, adultery, right? And remember what the rule keepers did? Well, they were like, hey, as long as we haven't had a sexual relationship with somebody who's not our spouse, we're good. It doesn't matter that we're flirtatious or we have um, lust in our hearts or we're sexually harassing or we have, we're addicted to pornography. None of that mattered. All that mattered to them was, are, am I keeping the rule, right, in its most minimal, minimal way? Now, what Jesus does is he goes back into that law and he says, you guys are missing the point. God says that all of those actions, Jesus said all those actions come from a heart that is in the wrong place, the heart that is sinning against God. And so, so Jesus says what God desires is a heart righteousness, a heart that flows from your heart. Now, 
One of the things that, that happens as we read through the Sermon on the Mount is, I don't know about you, but like it didn't take me very long at all in the Sermon on the Mount to realize I don't have any righteousness of my own, right? Like I can't make it. Like I've not been good enough. Like, like who in here would say, I've never been angry. I've never been angry. I've never, I've never had hate in my heart. I've never had bitterness in my heart. I've never been resentful. I've never been unforgiving. I can't imagine that someone would raise their hand and say, yep, that's me my whole life. Never once, you know? All of us are guilty. And so what, one of the things the Sermon on the Mount does is it shows us we need a Savior. We don't have a righteousness on our own. We need Jesus' righteousness. God sent His Son because none of us could keep the rules. None of us have been good enough. We, have not, we don't have God's heart in us. And so we've all broken His commands. And so God sent Jesus to live the perfect life and then to die a substitutionary death on the cross so that as we turn from our sins and put our faith in Him, we can be connected to Jesus. And when you're connected to Jesus, his righteousness goes into your account. Now we have a righteousness, not our own. And he pays for your sin by dying for it on the cross. And then you know what he does? He puts his spirit in you. And he puts his spirit in you and he begins to change your heart. All right? That's Christian life. He begins to change you from the inside out. Okay? And and, and so, so that's what we're dealing with is how God changes our heart to give us a heart righteousness. And so today... Same thing, just new, sort of new, actually sort of the same topic. And so today, Jesus continues this message of heart righteousness, talking about the issue of marriage and divorce. Now, my job today, to some degree, is impossible. Let me tell you what I need to do. I need to proclaim with the loudest voice possible what the Bible teaches about the sanctity of the marriage covenant and about the devastation of divorce. And I need to say what the Bible says clearly and boldly while at the same time being mindful and careful with those who have endured the pain of divorce. Divorce leaves deep, deep wounds. And, and man, as I, as I prayed about this all week, I, what I don't want to do today is, is just tear off scabs and make people bleed again. I, I, I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't think Jesus wants me to do that. But then at the same time, I'm in a room full of people right now. I was in a room full of people last hour. I was in another room full of people the hour before that that are married. And not only that are married, but many are going to be married. Teenagers, college students, children who are going to enter into marriage. And my friends, there is a pandemic of divorce sweeping the families of our nation. And we cannot afford to be silent. So, what does Jesus say? Well, consistent with what the Pharisees and scribes did with anger or with murder and with adultery, they did the same thing with divorce. Notice how they take, so here's what they did. Look in verse 31. They took everything that God said about marriage in the Bible, and and here's how they summarized it. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay? Okay. That, that was their standard of righteousness. Jesus said, this is what's being taught. What's being taught is, is, is that God's rule is this. If, if your spouse makes you unhappy, if you find some deficiency in them, then make sure you fill out the paperwork. And then you're righteous. Make, make sure you got the paperwork signed and you put it in their hand. That's what they boiled down God's standard of marriage to be. 
Now, when you look at the passages you're talking about in Deuteronomy 24, actually, really, I don't think, when I read Matthew or Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, we won't read it, but, but I don't think it really has anything to do with divorce, honestly. I think it, again, has to do with adultery. When you read that passage, basically it says, if, if, a, if, if a man gets divorced and, and, and he finds some impropriety or some, some shameful thing in his wife, it's not talking about adultery because he already deals with that, just something else, you know? She shames him in some way. And, 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 he, and he hands her a certificate of divorce. Now, again, stop. Moses is not saying, do this. He's saying, if this happens, terrible thing if it happens, and then that lady goes and marries somebody else, and then that guy does the same thing, or he dies, she shouldn't come back and marry the first guy again. That's, that's what Deuteronomy 24 says. The, the scribes and the Pharisees took that and said, this is God's command. Here's what God says about marriage and divorce. You know, that you ought to give that certificate. See, that, that's how they boil down God's righteousness. My friends, that is not God's righteousness. That is not what God says about marriage and divorce. Jesus is saying that it is not the heart righteousness that God is bringing about in his people that you keep your marriage vows until they let you down or shame you in some way and then just make sure you fill out the paperwork. God's righteous standard is one man and one woman in covenant commitment for life. And to dissolve that marriage because of some deficiency in your spouse, because you're tired of them, or they're lazy, or they're boring, or they're unattractive, or they spend too much money, or they embarrass you in public, or they're prideful, or selfish, or stingy, or emotionally constipated, or, or you're not going anywhere in life, or they have hang-ups, or they're annoying, or they have irritating quirks, and so you divorce them and pursue another spouse, and you have a piece of paper that legalizes it. Jesus says that is not what God is saying. Really, what he, what he says here in, in Matthew 5 is you've just legalized your lust. You've just legalized your adultery. Now, we're going to do quick work, okay? Let me tell you why we're going to do quick work, because I really don't want to talk about what we're talking about right now. So I'm going to move through it as quickly as I can, because there's something big that I want to talk to you about. Okay, but, but we've got to say some things here, so let's, let's do this. First of all, when people, most people, when they look at verse 31, 32, the reverse I just read, most people want to answer two questions from that. When can I get divorced? When is it okay with God for me to get a divorce? And, and when can I remarry after a divorce? Or can I remarry? Those, those are two of the questions that most people want to answer by looking at verse 31, 32. Here's what I would tell you. It's not teaching either one of those. Okay, it's not answering that question. Those aren't the questions that Jesus is dealing with in this passage. There are other places in the Bible that we might look, 1 Corinthians 7 being one of them. But, but, but Matthew 5, 31, Jesus is not really answering those questions. The question the Sermon on the Mount is answering is how do I stay married? How, how, do I, how do I have the kind of heart that perseveres in covenant faithfulness through the pain and frustration and disappointment with living with a sinner? That's the question he's answering. And so to approach this passage by saying, okay, I want to know when can I get a divorce and when can I remarry, you're asking the wrong question. My daughter just turned 15, my, uh, my third daughter, and uh, she asked me the other day, she said, Dad, when, when can you get your permit? You know, she knew it was sometime between 15 and 16, so we talked about that, we Googled it. it if, if she gets her permit and then she learns to drive and goes through driver's ed and then when she turns 16, we go and we get her license and she's got her license in hand and we both get in the car together and I'm going to let her drive because she has her license and she starts it up and she buckles her seatbelt and she looks over at me and she says, Dad, I have two questions. 
first of all, when can I wreck and total the car? And how quickly will you let me drive another one of your vehicles? I'm going to turn off the car. I'm going to take the keys. I'm going to say, you're not ready to drive, okay? Like, if, if that's the question you're answering, we've got a problem. All right, now, in the same way, the question that God is answering here is how do we stay married, okay? But I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about it. I realize that divorce is going to happen. Now, why do I say that? Well, because we live in a broken world full of broken people, controlled by the flesh, the old unrenewed humanist, the devil hates us. And so divorce is going to be a reality. In fact, it, it would super surprise me. It would surprise me if there's one person in this room that has not either been divorced personally or their spouse or their children or their parents or their siblings. In some way, it would super surprise me if you don't have some divorce near you. That, that would surprise me. Maybe there is somebody. If there is, you should rejoice. That, that's awesome that God has kind of blessed and preserved your family that way. But, but I would say that most of us in this room have, have felt the sting of divorce. Okay, so let's talk just a little bit about what if you find yourself divorced? What if you find yourself, what if that is a reality in your life? Uh, for whatever reason, we'll talk about those reasons in just a second. What if you find yourself divorced? Here's what I would say to you, number one. What should you do? Number one, you should, are you ready? Seek Jesus, okay? Because there is forgiveness in Jesus. Do you hear that? There is redemption in Jesus. There is healing in Jesus for divorce. And the cross of Christ redeems. The cross of Christ gives hope and new life and abundant life. And we can bask in the fullness of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, the perfect husband, the bread of life, the fountain of living waters, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, okay? That's what I would say to you first of all is you should pursue Jesus because Jesus can make you right, okay? Now, what about remarriage? Here's the honest truth. If I were actually to delve into that, if we were actually going to do that justice this morning, we would need this sermon and the next three. And I have no interest in that. I just don't. I'm sorry. I just, I just don't at all. And so here's what I would tell you. If you just ask me personally, what's my advice to you? What's my counsel to you? If, you? if you really want to delve into that subject, I would say to you, you ought to read everything John Piper has written on it and everything John MacArthur has written on it. Now, the reason I picked those two guys is twofold. Number one, they're both guys who consistently handle the Word of God with great accuracy and with great respect. And number two, I, I picked those two guys because they disagree on this subject, okay? So I want you to have, I want you to have the two views that I believe are, are within the realm of, of lining up biblically with what I see the scriptures, okay? Um, and, and so I, I would have you read both of those people, and I would have you seek the Lord desperately um, and see where you come down. I, I, happen to, I happen to agree with John MacArthur on this issue. Um, I, I believe there is a, a path for remarriage in certain circumstances. Let me talk about that real quickly. Let me just give you my opinion. Okay, so, so what, what if... What if you find yourself in divorce? Well, then you should seek Jesus, everything I just said. And then what? Well, if you are the guilty party. Now, see, this is where 
man, it, I, I need the rest of the sermon to really unpack that, okay? What if you're the guilty party? You know, because here's the reality. Like, what do we mean by that? Because I know in my marriage with him and I, if we're standing up here and we say, well, who's the guilty party? Both, right? I mean, we, we both let each other down. We both sinned against each other. That's the reality in every marriage. So what do we mean by guilty party? Well, usually what we mean by that is the person who dissolved the marriage, who initiated the divorce through either habitual adultery or abandonment. In other words, the guilty party, when there is a guilty party, we usually say that is the person who, who wrecked the marriage and the other person was trying to save the marriage, doing everything they could to save it, and the, other, and the other person just wouldn't have it. If you are that person, what should you do? Seek Jesus, okay? And everything I already said, all right? Seek Jesus to find redemption and forgiveness and healing and then be reconciled to your spouse if that is possible. If that is not possible, and again, this is the danger of having an abbreviated sermon like this, I would say embrace singleness and pursue the mission of Christ for the rest of your life. Now, I know that is incredibly hard to hear, um, but let me, let, me, let me tell you something that nobody else in our culture believes, okay? The happiest person that ever walked on the planet was named Jesus Christ, okay? There was nobody more happy than Jesus, nobody more fulfilled than Jesus. There was no man whose life made a bigger impact than Jesus, and he was single, okay? There is this distorted view in America that you can't be happy unless you're married, why in the world would Americans believe that, okay? We are like the picture of the opposite, okay? The rest of the world literally laughs at us. When we go to India, it, it doesn't take those guys long. It's usually a couple days before they feel comfortable enough with us, and they will ask us the first question. Like besides chit-chat, they'll ask us, why is there so much divorce in the American church? They cannot figure it out. Just can't figure it out. It baffles their minds. What I'm telling you is that if anybody ought to know that marriage doesn't make you happy, it ought to be the Americans, right? The Apostle Paul. Was there ever a happier guy than this guy? In the book of Philippians, he is chained to a Roman soldier awaiting his beheading. And the guy is so happy that every 10 verses, he's got to stop and say, rejoice in the Lord again. I'll say rejoice. And he's not married. We can make some jokes there, couldn't we, you know? But what I'm saying is, you, you read for yourself. That, that's what I see in the Scripture. If you're the innocent party, again, super, super subjective. I, I, I hate even throwing out these terms. Um, in 21 years, I've never ever had, and I've dealt with this hundreds and hundreds of times, I've never had anybody say they were the guilty party. But my outside view, okay, me looking in, I, I believe I have seen, in numerous occasions, I have seen a situation where one spouse was doing everything possible to restore the marriage, to forgive, to redeem, to love, to sacrifice, and, and another spouse wouldn't have it. And either through habitual adultery or abandonment, dissolve the marriage. And so in that case, I believe there is, in my mind, again, you read for yourself, in my mind, there is an innocent party. Okay, what should that innocent party do? And again, this is not like the reason that you can get divorced. No, there isn't one of those. There isn't one in the Bible. You say, well, you just said adultery. Yeah, I'm not saying if your spouse commits adultery, you should give. No, 
In fact, God picked a prophet in the Old Testament, had him marry somebody who would commit habitual adultery on him, and then had him go buy her back and spend the rest of his life loving her. Why? Because that's what God does. But if you find yourself in that situation, what should you do? You should seek Jesus. Everything I just said, I think immediately you should default to singleness. And then if you desire to remarry, this is so important. I want to say this publicly. I don't always get a chance to say it privately. I try. If you desire to remarry, spend a season searching the scriptures, praying, fasting in order to heal your soul. I I don't don't believe there's anything in this life that is more damaging than divorce. I don't think there's anything more painful. Maybe, maybe my experience, possibly losing a child, a young child in a tragic way. Maybe, maybe that. That that probably does rival the damage done. But divorce is incredible. So spend a season searching the scriptures. Spend a season with spiritual friendships, healing and discerning God's will for you. I say that because I've seen over and over again who I believe was an innocent party who just got run over by a Mack truck 10 times with divorce and then staggering to their feet and in loneliness and then this feeling that they couldn't be happy jumped into another train wreck. And I'm telling you, that, that makes me sick. And so what I would tell you is, please spend a season with the Lord. And then if God convinces you, if you're convinced through prayer, through the scriptures that it it is for you to be remarried, then marry someone only in the Lord. That's what Paul says, only in the Lord, okay? All right. I am done talking about that. I'm done all day. I did it three times. I'm done. (sighs) All right. Now, here's what I want to talk about, all right? How do you stay married? That's what I want to talk about, all right? So no matter what's happened in your past, if you're married right now, or if you're going to be married, here's what I want to talk to you about. How do you joyfully keep covenant marriage with another sinner? Okay, because whoever you married, guess what? You picked a sinner, all right? And they picked a sinner. So how do you love a spouse with God's kind of love and grow a marriage through the pain and the frustration and the disappointments of life with a sinner? How do you do that? That's what I want to talk about. And that's what I think the Bible is teaching us. It's creating in us the kind of heart that will keep a covenant for a lifetime. And so how do you do that? Number one, number one. You rightly define marriage. I believe if you go into marriage and you don't understand what it is, you're going to have a hard time keeping your covenant, okay? So what is marriage? First of all, we were created male and female. Matthew Matthew 19 tells us this. We were created male and female for the purpose of marriage. In other words, marriage was not an afterthought. God intended, intentionally created us male and female for the purpose of marriage. And Ephesians 5 defines that purpose. And the purpose is that we would be a picture of Jesus Christ's love for his bride, the church. Ephesians 5, read it, 22 through 33, explains it very clearly. Marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church. What are Em and I doing? What have we been doing for these 26 years? Hopefully we've been modeling covenant faithfulness that looks like Jesus and the church. That's what marriage is. If you miss that, I believe you, you, miss, you, you miss marriage, okay? That's what we're living out. And so practically, listen, the way that I am being treated by Jesus is the way that I am to treat Emma. That's the beauty of that picture, all right? If you believe this, it just ends a whole bunch of foolishness. 
It just ends a whole bunch of justification for resentment and bitterness and anger. It just ends it if you believe what I just told you. Let's say you find some deficiency in your spouse. You probably don't have to look very hard, honestly. Like, Emma doesn't have to look hard. Maybe they don't love you well in some way. Maybe they don't fulfill what you perceive to be their duties to you. Maybe they're not holding up into their, their end of the bar. I don't, I don't know. You find some deficiency. You don't have to look hard. Here's what I would ask you. Here's what I would have you think about. What is marriage? The picture of Christ in the church. And so here's what I would ask you. Are you fulfilling your duties to Christ? Are you? Are you perfectly? Do you always hit a home run with that? Or are you deficient in some way in your relationship with Jesus? Have you offended him in some way? Have you sinned against him in some way? Have you loved him, honored him, and served him as you should? And the answer to that for every single person in this room is no. You have not. And guess what? Jesus is faithful to you. He is marvelously faithful. He is gloriously faithful. It is so interesting to me that there are born-again believers who who are doing a poor job in following Jesus, loving Jesus, making disciples, taking the gospel, the ends of the earth. There are people that are, are doing that and living that way and completely expect Jesus to keep his covenant and, and for them to be saved from their sins and to spend an eternity in heaven and not hell and yet feel completely justified in breaking their covenant with their spouse because they are deficient in some way. That's the height of hypocrisy. How long should you endure a difficult marriage? Here's the way we answer this in our, in our staff. Pastor Daniel says it all the time. When Jesus divorces the church, we can all get divorces, okay? Like when it happens, I'm getting one. I think you should too. You know why? Because we're about to be thrown into hell and it doesn't matter, all right? When Jesus breaks his covenant with his people, when he divorces us, which he has every right to do, then we're all going to hell. So it doesn't matter what you do. I don't care what you do. I probably wouldn't even waste the time. Actually, it doesn't matter. The point is this. Jesus does not break his covenant. And so we are to live out that picture in our marriage. Number two. So number one, rightly defined marriage. And here's the big one. Number two, this is the one I really want to talk, talk to you about. Employ the gospel in solving marital problems. When I talk to Christians about their marriage, and I have, I have all kinds of opportunity to do this. Um, when I talk to Christians who are struggling in their marriage, one of the things I try to get them to see is, are you living out the gospel in your marriage? Everything that, that Jesus has put in you, that, that you are to put that in your marriage. The gospel has huge implications upon your marriage. Let, let, let me give you just a few of them, okay? When we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we're embracing, first of all, is that Jesus is my Savior, not Emma, Okay? Jesus is my Messiah, not marriage. All right, so, so here, here's how that plays out. If you're looking for your spouse to make you happy, if you're looking to your spouse to fulfill you, if you're looking for you, to your spouse to give you security and identity and peace and joy and confidence, get ready to be let down, okay? But when you've got two people that are making much of Jesus, this is the sweet spot right here. When you've got two people that are seeking their joy in Jesus, you've got two people that are running hard after the mission of God, you've got two people that are depending on and turning to and trusting the Father to bear the fruit of the Spirit, then marriage fits super nicely in that. You see, what I'm telling you is that the gospel The gospel gives you a big engine to deal with every marital problem. It gives you a supercharger, 
okay? It gives you an engine to deal with the things in marriage. Let me, let me read you one little verse here, and I just picked this one out of hundreds. There's all kinds of verses like this sprinkled all through the New Testament. Here's what it says, Ephesians 4.32. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. Why, 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 why? Here's where, here's where when I talk to a believer, it's totally different than talking to an unbeliever. Why should you do those things? We see the rest of the verse? As God in Christ has forgiven you. If you believe the gospel, my friends, then, then you have been loved incredibly well. You have, you have been shown infinite mercy and grace over and over and over again. Man, God's been so good to me. I deserve to be in hell. I keep messing up. I keep botching things. I keep sinning. And God keeps shoveling his mercy into my life, guys, day after day after day. I I love Ephesians 1. It describes our salvation. And it says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon. You know what the word lavished means? All right, when you go through the lunch line in the cafeteria and you've got that person that has the one little scoop, you know, and that's all you get, that's not lavish. Lavish is when you get the person and they shovel more and you're like, oh, no, 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 I got nothing. They're like, no, you need more. That's lavish. And God has lavished, lavished his mercy and grace in your life. And Ephesians 2 goes even further, and it says in verse 7 that he has put us in the heavenly places with Christ so that in the coming ages, so that in the billions of years ahead of me, of my life, here's what God's going to do. He is going to show his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward me in Christ. That's what God has done for me in the gospel. And I believe that. And because I believe that, How dare I withhold affection from my wife because she doesn't deserve it? How dare you give your spouse the cold shoulder because they let you down in some way? Why does God not kick us in the teeth? I don't know. Here we are, letting him down every day. And he's shoveling, shoveling, shoveling. Mercy, grace, heaven. And we turn around and we're like, you know what? She didn't smile quite right at me. And I'm tired of that. So I'm going to my shop. And I hope you don't die on the way to your shop. Because I don't think we want to face Jesus that way. Man, if I could only be a fraction of as good and gracious to Emma as he is to me. It's what the gospel does. See, if if you're not a believer, 18 years of my life, I did not understand this at all. Nothing, 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 nothing. I knew all the stories, I knew all the truths, but I didn't get this. But man, as a Christian, I feel the blessing of the gospel. And I'm to turn around, I'm to live that out with Emma. I'm to live it out with you all, but I'm to live it out with Emma first. The marriage that employs the gospel accesses the power of prayer. 
You want to know one of the greatest mysteries of the world? You ever figure this out? You get to preach the next week, okay? (laughs) Why married couples who profess Jesus Christ as their king and go through trouble do not pray together? Now, I know some might. Maybe you're ones that want to do, and and I would say, well, you probably work through your troubles then. But I'm telling you, I I have a string of them in my office, 21 years of it. And they're struggling, and they're hurting, and they're tore apart, and they're, they're crushed, and they're sad, and they're in pain. And I ask them, are you praying together? And they say, no. I can't figure it out. I saw on Facebook, so I don't know, something. I saw on the internet this week. Y'all, have y'all ever seen the Lord of the Rings movie? Yeah. Nobody here? Yes? A couple? Okay. There's like three of them. They're like three hours long, you know? And they're about these little hobbits, right, that make their way to the Mordor, and they got they go through battles and, man, terrible things, people dying, slaying. It's just horrible. Like for three movies, three hours apiece, epic journey. You know, finally they get to the mountain and throw the ring in there and get his finger bit off, all kinds of terrible stuff, you know. And then Gandalf calls the eagles, these giant eagles, to fly over and pick them up and fly them home. And the quote on wherever I read it was like, why didn't they call the eagles first, you know? Like, does that make any sense? Like, if they could have flew there to begin with, why didn't they do that? It's the same way with prayer. It's like, why would you not pray? Jesus Christ was ripped apart. He agonized stake to the cross. He bore the wrath of God for your sin in order, the Bible says, to make a way for you to go before God. Hebrews 4 says, God has given us access to the throne of grace. The veil was torn and through. He opened the way for us to pray, to tap into this colossal power of God. So the couple that embraces the gospel is the couple that says, we've got this incredible resource for our marriage. We got, we got help, hon. We got help. And, it, and it's from the Father. And so, man, we are going to put our stuff down, our problems, our hurts, our pain, our struggles, our disagreements, and we are going to come to the Father and we're going to pray. That's the couple that believes the gospel, the couple that believes that Jesus did what he said he did, and he opened the way. The marriage that employs the gospel embraces the certainty of Jesus' covenantal love. How certain is it that I'm going to make it to heaven? How certain is that? John 10. Are you ready? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. All right, I'm, I'm a follower. I think I've evidenced that in my life. I believe it. I'm striving for it. So how how certain am I about this end deal? I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Man, isn't that a great verse? That's, That's Jesus' covenant with us. That's exactly the way you enter into marriage. You enter into marriage saying, there is no out here. There there isn't one. We're going to make it. Why why is that strange to us? It shouldn't be. There's a lot of other areas of life where we don't give ourselves an out. 
How many of you have ever had toddlers? You've ever had, in your life, you had a kid that was three, four, five, six? Anybody, nobody had, anybody have toddlers at one time? Okay. Was it ever an option that you just take them back? That you just, like, I, we don't want this one. Was it? Is that, is that the way you looked at it? Like, like you know what? If, I'm giving them one more time. But if they don't get this, if they disobey, you know, if they drink out of the toilet one more time, that's it. I'll put them on the curb, and we're done. I would say that uh, maybe there might, there probably is some, but I would say most of you in this room did not leave that as an option, right? You were like, you know what? Hell or high water, we are making it to graduation. Now, graduation day, you're out. You know, I mean, that, that might have been, but man, we are covenantally committed to you. Same thing, Mary. There have been a couple times in this church where I have felt like I wanted to throw over tables like Jesus did in the temple. You know, you ever just feel like, ah! Both of them that I can remember were either in a small group or Sunday school class where somebody, I think both times as a lady, actually. <laughs> Different ladies, but you know, I think ladies maybe do this sometimes because they're trying to leverage their husband. But they said this statement. They said... It, if my husband ever commits adultery, if he ever does that, I, man, he's, it's done. It's true. You see what, that, see what they're doing? There's my out. I want to say this publicly, and I think you should say it publicly at some point. If there's ever adultery in my marriage, I don't believe that will ever happen. You guys know Emma, sweetest lady. But if that would happen, I commit to you, and I've committed to her, I will pursue you, I, I will forgive you, I will run after you. I won't be the pressure of this church, probably, but, but, I, but I, will, I will do everything in my power to win you back. And once you're back, I will forgive you, and it'll be behind us, we'll put it on the cross, and we will go forward to glory. Now, I know it's easier said than done. I, I believe it will be the most brutal, difficult, horrific time of my life. But that's the way I want to approach that. And, and it bothers me when people right off the bat say, well, there's, there's an out here. Now, she may run and refuse that and dissolve the marriage. And then what will I do? I will seek Jesus. My, we went through this, right? There is no out. Okay, quickly. I got a bunch of stuff I want to say and no time to do it. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this quick, okay? The rest of these are just things I, I want to say to you, okay? These, these, these are marriage killers, okay? Money. Listen, money's just a tool, okay? And, and it buys things, okay? But if what it buys has such a negative effect on your life as to harm your marriage, do not buy it. I see couples over and over again. Again, marriages aren't made or lost on money, but you, you, know, you know what happens? Money creates pressure. And, and, I, and I see couples getting themselves into such financial bondage that they, there's, their marriage is a pressure cooker, you know? And then they get home together and there's just this weight and pressure and 
One smells the other's breath, says, you, you went by and bought one of them expensive coffees, didn't you? Huh? I told we don't have the money for that, you know? And they're beating each other to the, to the house so they can look in the mailbox to get the package they ordered to hide it, you know? Listen, put your marriage first. You're laughing. Man, I, I see it all the time. They're under such incredible stress and strain. Don't buy it. It's not worth it. A happy marriage is of incredibly more value than having a, a toy and living in a pressure cooker. Mothers. All right, when God established marriage, what did he say? Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave, leave, leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Mothers, fathers, mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, do not make your son or daughter choose between you and their spouse. That's one of the wickedest things you could do. Don't do that. You may disagree with the marriage, okay? Before their marriage, you say everything in your power, okay? Say it, say it. Tell them, tell them your heart, tell them, tell them what you think, plead with them, pray with them, listen to them, okay? But once they are married, all right, now your job changes. You support your daughter-in-law, your son-in-law. You support them with all your heart. Why? Because you support the marriage, Next, we'll, we'll finish with this one. Comparing is stupid. Um, I hear people saying, I wish we had that marriage. Or I wish my husband was more like him. Or I wish my wife was more like her. Two, two things with that, okay? Number one, you don't know anything about their marriage, all right? People drive hundreds of miles. You would not believe this. People drive hundreds of miles to Woodward, Oklahoma for marriage counseling with a pastor here in Woodward so that nobody in their community will know that their marriage is tore up. If you're looking at somebody thinking, man, they, they got it all together. They're probably just a better faker than you. They're just a better pretender. So, so number one, don't, don't covet something you don't know anything about. And number two, it's just dumb to do so. All right, so you have the marriage you have. Teddy Roosevelt said this. He said, comparing is the thief of joy. Don't make yourself miserable. You know what you should do? Whoever you're married to, that's who you're married to. And so magnify their positives, all right? Whatever is good about them, think about it. Love it. Write it down. Write them poems about it, okay? No matter what it is, one, it's just maybe one thing. Man, you, you shower regularly. Okay, write it down. Man, good job. Thank, you know what, honey? You always smell clean. That's awesome, you know? I mean, whatever it is, make it a big deal. Celebrate it. This is the one that God has given you. You've got a covenant with them until death do you part, and then you're going to go to heaven, and there's no more marriage in heaven, all right? So live out your covenant cultivating gratitude for your spouse, thankfulness. Because it's Jesus who satisfies your soul, remember? Lincoln Avenue, here's the reality. Your marriage is going to be tested. 
I told uh, the staff, I said, I wish we could bring people in, in intervals, you know, like maybe after two years, three years, bring them in and just say, hey, look, you're going to be tested, you know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have that little kid, and that dude's going to cry all night, and you're going to be on your last nerve, and you're going to think you're not going to make it, and everything he does or she does is going to irritate you, and man, it's going to be bad, and then bring him in at 10 years and say, all right, you're going to have teenagers. And literally, you're going to disagree on everything, all right? And then we've got to bring them in around 35 to 45 years of age and say, okay, here's the big one. You, you think you, you've, you've taken your foot off the accelerator because you think, hey, we got this, right? And, you, and you've grown apart and you've kind of grown apart in your separate lives. And as the kids are leaving, you're going to look at each other and say, I know, why are we together? But you're going to be tested. You're going to be tested. And let's ask God to do great things at Lincoln Avenue. Let's ask him. Let's ask him to build marriages here that are a picture of the gospel, a picture of Jesus and his church. Let's ask him. Let's be obedient. Father, I ask you to do great things, God. God, wouldn't wouldn't it be awesome if there were never another divorce in the Lincoln Avenue family? God, we wanted to say it out loud. God almost seems like it's an impossible thing. It's beyond what we should even ask. But God, you tell us in Ephesians that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine. Lord, I just ask you to do great things in our marriages. God, do great things in, in the way that we live out the gospel to our husband, to our wife, to our family. God, make all that real to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please? Let's sing together.